Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of the Remedial Studies Podcast. Today, as promised, we are talking about Norwin Jewison's 1987 movie and cinematic masterpiece, Moonstruck. Yay! <laughs> it's my favorite movie! It's Anna's favorite movie. I rewatched it last night, and it is a true cinematic masterpiece. Yeah. This movie is so... It's so special and so wonderful, and it has Cher and Nicolas Cage in the 80s, and what more could you really ask for from a movie? Also, it's a romantic comedy, but it's one of the weirdest romantic comedies, I think, ever. I completely agree with that. I love, I loved this movie. I rewatched it again. I watched it last night. I was emotional about it. I work today. <laughs> Because it's so much. It's so much. And that's part of the appeal, I think, for me at least, is that it it manages this balance of having these really real and intimate and heavy discussions about what love is and what it does and what it's supposed to be with the ridiculousness and the -the over-the-top drama, most of which is Nicolas Cage's masterful performance, and this over-the-top vision of brooklyn that never really existed so many settings i think for romantic comedies like new york i think is a popular one where it's it's always this vision of a place that has never really existed but it's a place where anything could happen right this brooklyn it's a place where the moon lights up the sky like the daytime and imbibes people with this huge this need to love and be loved and it's it's wonderful it's wonderful (laughs) it really is shall i give our listeners a plot summary of the movie oh please do because you could probably do it so much better than i could i can probably just read you the actual script just (laughs) from memory please oh we'll get there we'll get there (laughs) okay So the movie follows the story of Loretta Castorini, who keeps saying that she has been unlucky in love. She is a widow. She married her first husband when she was very young, uh, and he got hit by a bus and died about two years into their marriage before they could have any kids. So she's sort of alone. She's not alone alone because she lives with her family and they're very Italian and they all live together in this big house. So she lives with her mom and her dad and her grandfather and her, she's a brother, but he's, we never see him. She's a bookkeeper. She goes around to all these businesses and keeps their books for them. And we meet her, uh, the opening credits are rolling over a funeral and that's important. (laughs) because of the movies kind of for a rom-com it's very fixated on death but she is seen as this practical sensible no-nonsense woman uh one of the early scenes is she gets engaged to her longtime friend boyfriend johnny camerary and he is uh a big man baby yeah and that's a very polite way of putting that She has to pick out his suits for him. She has to pick out his meals for him. He, like, keeps leaving his suitcases everywhere. What happens is they go out to dinner. He proposes to her. He doesn't have a ring, so he gives her his pinky ring as an engagement ring. 
because he didn't actually get her like an engagement ring, which should tell you pretty much everything you need to know about this character. Yeah, it's, mm, I have thoughts. We'll get to them later. And then he flies out to Italy because his mom is dying and he has to go be with his dying mother. And he asks Loretta while he's in Italy if she will call his estranged brother and invite him to the wedding. And Loretta's like, okay. And she calls him up the estranged brother, whose name is Ronnie. They, they are Johnny and Ronnie. She calls up Ronnie and tries to invite him to the wedding, and he hangs up on her. So she goes to the bakery where he works. So she goes down, and she goes to meet Ronnie, and she says, like, I am here to invite you to, you know, my wedding to your brother. And... You know, I know there's this bad blood between you, but, like, your brother really wants you to come to this wedding. And this is when Nicolas Cage, who plays Ronnie, comes in, and it turns out that the bad blood between Ronnie and Johnny is that Ronnie was going to get married five years ago. And he was slicing bread for Johnny, and his hand got caught in the slicer, and his fiance left him. And this is, like, the most iconic scene in the movie. But he, like, mm-hmm. slowly pulls the glove off of the wooden hand. And he says the iconic words, like, bring me the big knife. I'm going to slit my throat. And then it's like, Chrissy, bring me the big knife. Big knife. And it's so beautiful that- and it's this whole, I'm, I'm sorry to derail you, but it's this whole scene of him just being so melodramatic and so operatic, like, screaming his life tragedy at Loretta. <laughs> While the entire bakery watches. Yes, some of them are in tears. And he's just like, I lost my hand. I lost my bride. Johnny has his hand. Johnny has his bride. So it's this huge fuck you to her. <laughs> Like, regardless of what she knows or doesn't know, that he would even send her there. Yeah. Thinking that everything's just going to be okay. Right. And he's like, no, fuck you. And what happens is that after all of this, Loretta, instead of being like, well, whatever, I'm out. This guy's obviously crazy. She's like, can, can we just go, like, talk somewhere? Like, where do you live? Let's go talk. I'm like, okay, Loretta, I don't know what you're thinking, but fine. So he lives above the bakery, and they go upstairs, and they start talking about their their lives and how both of them are stupid. Anyway, what happens is they end up having sex, <laughs> uh-huh. and so Loretta has just had sex with her fiancé's strange brother. He's in Italy while his mother is dying, and now... She's like, you can't come to the wedding. I can never see you again. Like, this is crazy. And he's like, look, I will leave you alone on one condition. If you go to the opera with me. If I can have the two things. He's a huge opera freak. Which I love. This blue-collar baker in Brooklyn is, like, devoted to the opera. That's so real. Like, I feel like there's somebody who's like that even now as we speak who just... Oh, there has to be. I would be su- I would be more surprised if it, there weren't. Right. I just don't... I just don't know if you see that in media. Like, the blue-collar person who's just really in love with a particular art form. 
Anyway, regardless, side note, that's a tangent. So she agrees to go to the opera with him. Well, first she has to go to confession. Yes, because she's they're very Catholic because they're very Italian. Then she has a makeover scene and she buys a little red dress to wear to the opera. That's one of my favorite shots in the movie is when she stops to go into the department store. The camera pulls back a little bit and there's the little red dress on one side. And then there's like a white full-length gown on the other side where it's like she could choose to be a bride or she can choose to go down this path that the little red dress represents and she comes out with the little red dress. Anyway, so they go to the opera. It's La Boheme. Which is just Rent. I mean, I feel like Rent is just La Boheme, but... I mean, that's true. (laughs) Rent, which interestingly enough had not come out when this movie was made, but if if you don't know what La Boheme is about, it's the plot of the musical Rent. Or Rent is the plot... Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) time it's weird (laughs) so they have a beautiful evening at the opera but loretta runs into her father with his mistress which the movie watcher knows he's been having an affair but this is the first that loretta knows her mom earlier in the film is like suggested like when she goes to confession actually she sees her mom at the church and her mom tells her your dad is having an affair and loretta's like no no and then she sees him at the opera with his mistress and he sees her at the opera with ronnie while johnny is in italy with his dying mother but basically what happens is johnny's mother miraculously recovers and johnny flies back from italy that night that she's at the opera after the opera there's a big scene which we're gonna like obsess over pretty soon uh (laughs) where you know, Loretta agreed to the going to the opera. She's like, and that's it. Just the opera. Just the opera. Like, you can't kiss me. You can't do anything. But afterwards, Johnny, or I'm sorry, the rhyming names, the rhyming names, they kill yes. me. <laughs> Ronnie takes her back to his apartment and they're standing outside his apartment. It's really, so it's close to Christmas in the movie, but it's not a Christmas movie. Like, the lights are just up and everything at the Met But it's really cold, and it's in New York, and it's just freezing cold. You know, he convinces her to come upstairs with him. And so when Johnny gets back to her house, Loretta is not home at, like, 11, somewhere between, like, 11 p.m. and 1 a.m. And he's, like, there's a scene where he, like, looks at his watch to be, like, she's really not home. Uh, But he doesn't really comment on it. So Loretta goes home the next morning, and she's just floating on air down the Brooklyn streets. Yes. She comes in. She comes in the kitchen. Her mom is in, like, her house coat and slippers, and she's like, what is wrong with you? She basically is like, you know who came looking for you last night? Johnny. And guess who's coming over this morning? Johnny. So Loretta, like, freaks out because the doorbell, because it's a movie, the doorbell rings just then. Loretta freaks out, jumps into a cupboard with her pajamas, <laughs> and, like, changes out of the little red dress into her pajamas. But it's not Johnny that is at the door. Ronnie has come after her. Mm-hmm. And then her dad comes downstairs, her grandfather comes downstairs, 
And then her aunt and uncle show up because she was so flustered by this whole series of events she forgot to make their bank deposit and they were kind of like thinking maybe she stole it. But she didn't. She just forgot about it. Uh, So they show up to get the deposit and they're all standing around the table and it's really awkward and there's this strange guy there and they have hickeys on their necks and it's like, what is going on? And then... Johnny shows up and he tells Zaretta that he can't marry her because his mother will die. Yes, in a callback to the whole bad luck in marriage. Yes. So Loretta at first is like, excuse me, you're not going to marry me? Like, you promised that you would marry me. And then Ronnie is at, this is the funniest, I think the funniest thing that happens in the movie. And he's like, Loretta, sweetie, what are you saying? (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the day, Ronnie, so she throws the pinky ring back at Johnny. Ronnie actually then proposes to her with the same pinky ring. And they are then engaged at the end of the movie. And Johnny is just like, I don't know what's happening. The grandfather doesn't know what's happening. Uh, And then in probably one of the most poignant moments in the movie, and maybe we can start our conversation here. I cry. Or nearly cry every time I watch this movie. And I've seen this movie probably ten times. It's the only movie I rewatch on a regular basis. But the scene, it's still the same scene where they're all around the kitchen table. But there's an exchange between Rose, the mother, and Cosmo, the father who's having an affair. And Rose looks at him across the table and everyone is standing there except Johnny, who hasn't entered yet. She looks him straight in the eyes and she says... Cosmo, I want you to stop seeing her. And Cosmo stands up, like smacks the table with both hands, and then sits down and he says, okay. Like, (laughs) and then he says, you know, it's a bad, crazy day when a man wakes up and he realizes his life has amounted to nothing. And she looks at no, it's built oh, on it's nothing. it's built on nothing. Thank you. I think. And she looks at him across the table. And she says, and it's like this barely controlled just grief and hurt and like deep love. And she looks at him and she says, your life is not nothing. And like says, I love you in Italian. I've revoked my own Italian privileges for your own benefit, listeners. <laughs> for your for your safety and comfort. We will not be trying to speak Italian in this episode. Uh, and it's just like that scene and that exchange is why Olympia Dukakis, who plays Rose, won Best Supporting Actress in 1987. She's so good. Mm-hmm. I actually would like to begin our conversation here because it leads into something I really, really liked about Moonstruck as a concept for, like, how all the stories intersect. It's not, except for Ronnie, who's obviously younger than everybody else, it's not a lot of young people. One of the major romantic conflicts between Rose and Cosmo is, like, they're her parents and she's supposed to be 37. So, like, they're in their 60s minimum Mm -hmm. and they're still having all of these emotional trials and tribulations that are still affecting them and like her aunt and uncle share one of my favorite moments in the whole movie because her uncle is the one who brings up the moon for the first time i think 
the titular feeling of being moonstruck is he talks about when Cosmo was wooing Rose and he showed up to their house and he kept saying Cosmo brought the moon down with him. And it's it was like this huge, bright moon that lit up the sky. It belongs to something in a fairy tale because obviously it would not happen in the real New York City, even in the 80s. But he sees that moon again when Ronnie and Loretta sleep together for the first time. And when she stays over at his house the first night and his wife just kind of rolls over in bed and looks at him and she goes, you know, in that light with that moon, you look 25. And I had to like pause the movie. (laughs) I had to take a moment. It really is, I think, an underrepresented thing. The movie shows how it affects men as well as women. But I think it's a thing that's peddled to women more where your life stops at a certain point and i i think like i've been dealing with that recently because it's the whole thing it's a total fiction but it's still something that people deal with where you feel you have to have some measure of success quote unquote when you're in like your mid to late 20s or your life is over which is not true no (laughs) and like coming to coming to terms with the fact that that's not a thing has been a lot of what i've been trying to do for the past like year there's no markers there's no finish line. We're all just running ahead, trying our best. You shouldn't measure where you get and how fast you get there by what other people do because they're going through something totally different. I think that's reflected in this movie because so many of the, and they're all so great, the, the female characters. And we see like the really young women that like the professor dates, quote unquote. <laughs> to rose and her sister and like loretta's supposed to be 37 where it's this wide range of of female romantic experience that is often not included in romantic comedies yeah i i think showing older people as having being in love and making really terrible romantic choices in the case of the dad who has the affair and also, like, still being really in in love with each other and still being intimate at that age. Like, that's a real thing that happens. Like, you don't just stop being a human person because you got older. There was something so touching about how out of the way they went to include all that. Because the movie is really about everybody being a bit moonstruck. Mm-hmm. For, in, in their own ways. But I, I do very much enjoy that and... That kind of goes into some of the real talk that happens in this movie. And a lot of it comes from Rose is this question she asks. She has two scenes where she talks about this. One with, is his name Perry? Perry the professor, who's a regular. Perry the professor, who's a regular at the restaurant that's down the street from their house. First Loretta and then her mom see two different women walk out on him. Over the course, this movie takes place over the course of like two or three days. So that's not good. He is this older middle-aged professor at NYU who keeps dating his students (laughs) which would never fly these days and he consistently will like get walked out on and he'll get dumped and all this other stuff he gives this whole big sob story to Rose about it who just does not believe it well she believes he experiences it but not (laughs) for the reasons that he thinks he Mm -hmm. does and she asks him because she's she's now convinced that Cosmo is having an affair, which is true. 
and she asks him, why do men chase women? And I don't really remember what his answer was, probably because it sounded like bullshit. It was wrong. He had the wrong answer. It was wrong. But she asks that question again to Johnny Mm -hmm. when he comes over, when he drives from the airport, like a fucking white knight, (laughs) from when he comes home from Italy. He and her talk about it, and she she says, I think it's death avoidance. And that made me, like, really think about how that put the actions of all the other men in the movie into context, with the exception of Ronnie, to a point. How, like, Cosmo and Perry and them, especially in contrast to her uncle, it's like they're trying to reclaim something they feel they've lost, which is not really true. Things change, but they're not necessarily lost. It's like that whole thing where it's like, well, your life isn't built on nothing. Who the fuck do you think you are? (laughs) Yeah. Like, you're going to die just the same as the rest yeah. of us. Oh, my gosh. That's one of the best. There, Okay, every moment in this movie is the best moment. True. But uh, Cosmo comes home while Rose is talking to Johnny. And she, he's, like, standing in the hallway. And Rose looks at him. She looks him dead in the face and says, Cosmo, it doesn't matter what you do or how much money you have. You're going to die the same as everybody else. And then he, like, mm-hmm. nods. Like, thanks, Rose, and goes upstairs. I didn't really know what to expect from my rewatching, because obviously I watched when I watched it for the first time with you. I was watching more for plot. Kind of, that's what I do usually, because I am a rewatcher. I like rewatching things. So I'll usually watch the first time for plot, and then I'll watch for deeper things the second time. Like, that whole thing, it's still fucking me up. And I'm reading one of the death books in the Discworld series, so that one-two combo has just been, oh. You got some really messed up uh, serendipity going on there. (laughs) I do. In the book I'm reading right now, it's talking about time, which is also something I think that that plays into this movie. But in in Reaper Man, which is the book I'm reading, death essentially gets fired and he's going to die. And he takes this job at this farmhouse and he gets to use a scythe and he cuts the blades of grass one, one at a time. When the woman's, like, looking at him, it looks like it's taking forever, obviously, because you're cutting it one at a time. And then she looks away and looks back, and it's like he's almost done. There's a section later where Death talks about, like, someone chipping away at his life one second at a time. And I was really emo about it because of this movie. (laughs) Because it kind of talks about that between, like, Ronnie, especially when we talk about Ronnie's outlook on love versus... Almost everyone else is, even Loretta's at one point, where Loretta is so controlling in the beginning, mostly, I think, because she had that horrible experience of falling in love and getting married and her husband dying very suddenly. Now that she's getting married again, it's just somebody that her dad doesn't like and who needs his hand held. And she doesn't love him because it's... She doesn't love him. It's safer to not love him. Yes, because a big thing about love in this movie, and we see it most with Rose, most in practice with Rose, is love hurts you. Love gives another person the power to wreck you. And Rose sees that with Cosmo because she's just wrecked for the fact like, even in that scene you talked about earlier, like, I th- like the opening salvo of that whole conversation is, haven't I been a good wife? Ugh. Which, that woman deserved every ounce of her Oscar. I can't 
But Ronnie has something that he mentions when they're going back to his apartment from the opera, where he basically sums up a bit of the theory of this film, which is love doesn't make things nice. And I think if we look at that view versus particularly the men in the movie, if we group them into a couple different camps of like Perry and Cosmo and Johnny to an extent and Loretta's uncle of the whole like, well, love doesn't make things nice. You do. <laughs> like, it's not this big catch all thing that's that's going to be this miracle thing that makes your life great because that's not how life works. And that's so different from so many things we see in romantic comedies. I don't think romantic comedies that are like, find love and you'll be happy are bad. Because that's like an escapist fantasy that I love to <laughs> Yeah. God knows. <laughs> but it's this weird balance between this very gentle, larger than life, ethereal style of romantic comedy versus having that realness. Mm-hmm. And I've never really seen another romantic comedy that I feel that I feel does that as effectively as this film does. It's a little bit apart from everything else, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So I have been watching this the last couple times that I've watched this. I have a, a later edition of the film with the commentary. They had the director and the writer and Cher do commentary for the movie. Um, so I'll watch the movie, and then either the next night or, the like, within the same week, I watch it again with the commentary on, because I'm that person. No, I love, I love commentary. <laughs> this commentary is so good, and it, it really just informed my opinion of the movie, and, like, a lot of things that I had cooking, you know, maybe not fully developed and i was like i was right i was totally right <laughs> shanley said so <laughs> and i know we talk about the author doesn't we don't care what they think but it's still sort of gratifying it regardless it is that vindication is not is not to be understated anyway on the commentary shanley talks about how and Jewison also talks about this. The language is really heightened in this movie. Like, people don't go around talking like this. Like, they don't have fits in the bottom of the bakery and scream about their missing brides and their missing hands. And there's a scene early on where uh, Loretta goes and picks up a bottle of wine from a liquor store near her house. And it's run by a couple and as she's walking in, the woman and the man are kind of having an argument. And the woman is saying, like, I see how you look at her. And he's like, how do I look at her? She's like, you look like a wolf. I've seen a wolf in you, and I see a wolf in everyone I meet. And, like, no one talks like that. But you believe it. <laughs> you 100% oh, believe it. It's There's something special about the movie. It's in the doorway of moving into something a little bit mystical. Because uh, when Cher sees off, Cher Loretta, sees off Johnny to go to Italy to visit his dying mother, there's a little Italian woman, she's basically a crone, 
who is like, oh, do you have someone on that plane? And Loretta's like, yes. And she's like, I put a curse on that plane. And you're just like, whoo! <laughs> and that, like, okay. I think that preps you really for, like, what is to come in the movie and sets you up for, like, this is what this is going to be. We're going we're gonna to edge into that gray area just slightly. We're going to, like, touch the veil. We're not going to cross the veil. We're going to, like... We're gonna brush it. We're gonna rub up on. We're gonna rub up on the veil. Tell the veil how we really feel, <laughs> but not, but not penetrate. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've lowered the tone for this whole. Discussion That's okay. Now. I think it needed it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I, I totally get that. And we talked about this a little bit in the production meeting about how this film feels a lot more like a play, right, than a movie, right. Especially, like, that big... It was very Shakespearean to me, that big end scene with everybody around the kitchen table. Because mm-hmm. that's, like, every Shakespearean comedy <laughs> is ever, ever someone right. gets married or engaged. And everything is revealed and everyone is in one room at the end. Um, and that's interesting to think about if we think about the other... One of the big motifs in the film is the opera, La Boheme. A lot of the music is in the background. Like, Ronnie is obsessed with it. That's, like, their big actual date they go on is they go to the Met and they go to see La Boheme and uh, Loretta like bursts into tears um, at a song. I think it's Mimi sings. Mimi dies at the end. And she had that comment, which I didn't appreciate until I thought about it later today, was like, well, I knew she had to die. Ronnie's like, well, she had TB. Like, of course she was going to die. And she's like, well, I know she had all those coughing fits, but she kept having to stand up and sing. <laughs> And I'm like, why does that feel like my life? <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, La Moem is, from what I vaguely recall, I've, I've listened to it a couple times. It's very Italian. But it's it's kind of pastiche Like, the, the book it was based on was basically just, like, this loose collection of stories that all happened to, like, these bohemians in Paris and that's what the opera is it's like this collection of these like four bohemians and all the people around them and their girlfriends and stuff but i think it also kind of takes place and rent does this with new york city as well where it takes place in this like weirdly heightened and grounded version of reality these horrible things happen but it's still kind of this larger than life world yeah, and some of the places that get set up kind of prepare you for that. Because, I mean, you have the Met, which is, like, a set. It's the set. It is something else. Uh, I haven't been there in real life. One day, maybe, but... I know. I've been to New York a couple times, but we've never gone. Sad face. And you also have the Sweetheart Liquor Store and the... The Cinderella Beauty yes, Salon. Yes, you have the Cinderella Beauty Salon. And even you have the restaurant, which is the Grand Tocinos, I believe. And that was based on a real place, they said in the commentary. They had to build their own version of the restaurant, but it's it's like a real place. And not like they filmed in the real bakery. Right, they did. Which is apparently a pain to light because the ceilings were so low. <laughs> God, I can't even imagine. But I I remember, I think, in an interview, the director said he wanted it because they had the coal-fired ovens. Right. Uh, They talk about that in the commentary, how it makes Ronnie, he said, maybe, I can't remember if it was Shanley or Dua said, but it's probably Shanley because Shanley is a big nerd. 
it made Ronnie into this Vulcan character. Oh, I like. Yes. <laughs> no, that makes so much sense. Because of Vulcan and Hephaestus being broken gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or crippled gods, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. That scene, so like, okay, we have to we have to pause because we need to address the elephant in the room, which is, yes. Nicolas Cage was hot. Nicolas Cage was hot and a great actor in the 80s. Yeah, which was astonishing to me the first time I saw this movie with you. Right. Because, and we talked about this a little bit in the pre-production meeting, I have only ever been cognizant of Nicolas Cage in the National Treasure era. Where he, he's kind of like, like, I didn't know we lived in a world where Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage was a thing. <laughs> yeah. But you know, we have Academy Award winner Matthew McConaughey now, I, so who knows? I don't know what happened. The two movies I most heavily associate with Nicolas Cage are National Treasure, which I love, and Ghost Rider, which I also love. <laughs> so it was never a, to me, Nicolas Cage, it was like Tom Cruise. <laughs> Yeah. Nicolas Cage has the specific brand nowadays of the Nicolas Cage crazy. Like how Tom Cruise jumping on sofas when he was on Oprah had the Tom Cruise crazy. It was just who he was. It wasn't positive or negative. <laughs> it was just, it was just, oh, that's Nicolas Cage. And then to see him in like his prime in like the late 80s and the 90s, it's, I'm just like, who are you? Right. Why are your arms so chiseled? I can't. Yeah, because he's in the um in the bakery scene. It's like the dead of winter, but it's really hot because of the furnaces. So he's in like a wife beater, and like I don't know what. Yeah, he's he's got like a wife beater. He's like covered in soot, and he's sweaty, and the lighting against the sheen of sweat. It's is a great. lot. It's, <laughs> it's a lot. And he still kind of does have that Nicolas Cage craziness. Like, he's a very intense, melodramatic actor. He is. He is. And and I think it's, I think some of it might be that nowadays, and I'm sure back, back in whatever day that you want to choose, that scene is like, quote unquote, bad acting. And I don't think it I is. I think that's a lie. And I, who said that? <laughs> it's the same people who unironically like Citizen Kane. Uh, <laughs> I will fight them. <laughs> but, but it's, we talked about this in the last episode. You don't need a reason to like things. Right. I wholeheartedly enjoy Nicolas Cage's performance in this film. I think he's fantastic. Because the thing is, Cher was totally right. If anyone but Nicolas Cage had been Ronnie... It would not have worked. Right. So on the commentary, I'm going to swoop in with the commentary again. Yes. Swoop. Swoop away. They screen tested someone else at one point. They screen tested Nicolas Cage and some other guy. They don't say who it was. And Shanley said he saw the tape and it was just share with some guy. Like this guy couldn't stand up to share. Because share is like, share is share. Like she's one name. She's share. Yeah, she's share. And they were like, okay, we're going to have you do the movie with this other guy. They couldn't, what, there was some technical paperwork reason they couldn't get Nicolas Cage. Or they just didn't want him, it wasn't it? I don't know. Because Nick Cage seemed like, from what I understood in the commentary, seemed like maybe a little bit of a loose cannon. I mean, 
I mean, he is Nicholas Cage. Right. So um, I think at one point during filming, he got really mad and threw a chair. That sounds like something he would do. But anyway, they were like, we're not going to go with Nicholas Cage. We're going to go with this other guy. And Cher said, and I quote, and this is the thing I love most about the commentary. She's like, if if you're not going to get Nikki, I'm not going to do the movie. So Cher calls Nicolas Cage Nikki. I just want the entire world to know that because it is the best thing on the entire planet. <laughs> she's the only person allowed to do that. I'm, I'm sure because sure, she's Cher. Um, so Cher put her her foot down and they were at a stalemate for two days and they came back and they said, Cher, are you really not going to do the movie if we don't get Nicolas Cage to play this part? And she's like, yes. I. She thought about it and she was like, yes, I am not going to do the movie unless we get Nicolas Cage. And this movie wouldn't have worked without Cher. Like Cher is so mm-hmm. integral to to why this movie works because it's i mean it's not like Cher Cher can act and she's not Cher it like you know what i mean but it's like there's that element that she brings because she's Cher and nicholas cage brings something too and i don't know what that is but together like it's just so perfect and weird and just a little bit left of center that it works perfectly and like sorry to that other guy but it's just like this was how it was meant to be it was meant to be i completely agree with that i truly truly think for the tone of the movie what it tries to do with that whole heightened reality thing if you didn't have nicholas cage with the nicholas cage crazy and you didn't have share be in share it wouldn't have worked it's the same as if if they hadn't cast the people they cast for the other adult roles it wouldn't have worked the chemistry of that cast is something, like, you don't see it that often, I feel like. There's just something, it's a really special movie, and it feels like lightning in a bottle to me, and I think that's why I never get tired of it. It's just so special. I agree with that. It's so, it's a rom-com that's totally focused on, like, the inevitable fact that we're all going to die. And that it means that we should live our lives to the fullest and accept the risks of vulnerability and heartache. And, like, mm-hmm. that's a punch to the to the solar plexus if I ever felt one. Yeah, like, it, I was reminded of, I think it was a Tumblr post. <laughs> you know how some Tumblr posts are just like, you don't need to call me out. I'm in this post and I don't like it. (laughs) Exactly. I see myself in this and I'm not into it. But like the whole scene of her being like, well, you're a wolf and you're never going to stop being a wolf because now you know that you you have like the the resilience needed just to chew off your own hand rather than stay trapped. And it's that one Tumblr post that was like, in order to experience the joy of being loved we must submit to the turmoil of being known (laughs) and that that really got me (laughs) in ronnie and loretta because like like that's something i think all the characters struggle with at some point is knowing yourself and letting somebody else see that see what you see in you right because loretta isn't letting herself be seen by johnny that's the attraction of johnny he's totally safe because he's not looking he's not even trying exactly and i think ronnie just sees they really see each other right to the core of who 
They are. And, you know, he says the most dangerous thing a woman like you can do is play it safe. <laughs> Just like, dang. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Why would you sell? Yeah, you're going to marry my brother. Why would you sell your life so right. short? It's so crazy, like, because Ronnie, like, like, literally throws a table and, like, grabs Loretta and kisses her. And I feel like if that happened in real life, I would not be into it because that kind of thing scares the living crap out of me. Oh, relatable. But I don't know. In the, in the fiction of the movie, I'm like, I could, I don't know, maybe it would be okay. I think I bought into it because it felt like it fit with the mood yes of the whole operatic dramatic yes thing that that's ronnie's yes thing. it is very opera is not opera is so over the top and you come to an opera expecting that exactly you come to an opera expecting everyone to just sing their feelings the whole time and then die probably yes probably I remember that was one of the things that we have done in our friendship is you would come over and eat pizza at my tiny apartment and we would watch Project Runway and sometimes we would mm-hmm. do like we would do voiceovers for Project Runway. Project Runway with Project Runway <laughs> on mute. Uh, and I remember one time you came over and Project Runway wasn't on so we ended up watching like the ring cycle on PBS instead. <laughs> Yes, that that German opera. Yeah, man, that's that's something else too. But I also it was some I also went to an opera in real like real real life. I went to Daphne with one of our mutual friends, and that is also real real melodramatic and ends in tragic tragic death. It's just an opera thing. It's just what they do. I think it is. I think it's it's a it's a stage thing at some point. Like I remember. This is so bougie. I remember going to the ballet for the first time. Ooh, you fancy. <laughs> I know. I don't even, I think it was Giselle was the ballet we went to see, which is, you know, the typical, typical ballet drama, which has a lot of crossover with typical opera drama. It's that whole thing of like the stage being the heightened version of the world to lead to some sort of catharsis. Again, to sort of go back to how particularly think how this movie was shot which complements a lot of the stuff that's going on in the script is it it feels like you're watching something play out on a stage which in most movies i feel is something they try to avoid right i don't know why that is if it's like a difference in format or just what you can do with the the square of yeah everything in a movie happens in a box essentially and plays aren't like that they don't have they can be like that but they don't have to be like that Mm -hmm. like one of my favorite productions i've ever seen was uh, one of our local theater companies here does usually a musical a play and two shakespeare shows every year and they did hamlet a year ago the set they designed was designed to look like the globe theater and there were like people sitting on the stage and it took me a minute to kind of realize the whole time, the whole show, there was no furniture. <laughs> there was no scene changes. But you you could still picture in your head, oh, this is where we are now. This is where we are now. This is what's happening. Stage, I think, can utilize the theater of your imagination or your suspension of disbelief in a way that I that is much more malleable than films are. 
I think you see that a lot in special effects mm-hmm. and the overuse of special effects. To go back to a point that I'm sure I will write a Twitter thread about at some point, the difference between the special effect use in like Lord of the Rings, which is all very practical and it's like real people in real costumes running around the New Zealand countryside versus The Hobbit, where a lot of it, while it's very good CG, it's still computer generated. It's still intrinsically artificial. And you can't have something like that in a play. Mm-hmm. You're completely reliant on what your actors can produce and what the audience will buy into. Though I will say I went to an American in Paris last summer and they can do some sweet, sweet stuff with projection now. Like, mm-hmm. holy crap. It was like some next level stuff. Oh, it's crazy what people can do. I think it's just one of those things that you don't you don't notice unless it's utilized in something like that or it's just done badly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. If I may sum up my feelings and then you are free to sum up yours. I think the thing that was so, that's so, I almost want to just use it to describe it. It's so moonstruck. Like, it just is its own thing. It really is, like you said, it's this lightning in a bottle thing of everything working together. And if one piece was off, it wouldn't work. Like, if someone else had been Ronnie, if someone else had been Loretta, if someone else had been Rose or Cosmo or anybody, even if someone else had been Barry, like, it would not have worked. And that is so special and Something that is such a hard needle to thread, I can't even imagine, in film. But I think the thing that resonates with me, why I've been walking around in a moony days all day, is that it has so much to say, and it hides it a little bit behind making you laugh, which I think is a very noble thing to aspire to when making comedy, because the root of all comedy is fear. (laughs) Um, which is something we'll probably talk about at a later date. But if the root of all comedy is fear and the root of men chasing women is fear and all this other stuff, it it's a film that accepts that fear but tells you not to let it control you. I think that's a similar message to a lot of other romantic comedies, but in this movie, it's just true. And I think that's the thing I love most about this movie is so much of it is just true, which is odd because it does take place in this New York City that never existed in this melodramatic operatic stage vision of life where you know no one really acts like that but you're like yes that's what I would do yes that is exactly what would happen and to have a balance between those two is so special and I think I want to say Roger Ebert wrote a really good review on it. Yeah, there's this huge, like, great movies that he did before he died. And what he said about it that I thought was really good was, I think he wrote this in 2003. Seeing Moonstruck again this week, I was struck by how subtle and gentle it is, despite all the noise and emotion. How it loves its characters and refuses to limit their personalities to a few comic traits and what goes on between Rose and Perry, particularly, is nuanced and insightful. It doesn't limit them to dirty old man and lonely housewife, but shows them open to the beauty and mystery of life. 
This movie makes you laugh, which is very difficult, but it also makes you feel more open to your better impulses, and that is harder still. And I think that's true. It makes you open to the idea that love in all its messiness and awfulness and horror (laughs) is worth it. And isn't that just what we need to hear sometimes? I think it definitely is because for me, like, I have to sit down and and reflect why this movie is my favorite movie. Why is this the movie that I keep coming back to over and over and over again when I don't do that with movies? Why, why is this the exception to that? I think it's a movie that kind of embraces the realities of love, which is that it makes you kind of crazy and it's hard (laughs) and it's messy and you're gonna get hurt and to go in with the expectation that you're not ever gonna hurt and that you're not ever gonna hurt anyone in return is absurd and silly and and I think it's really a movie about what happens when instead of running away from things, running away from death, from bad luck, from risk, It's about what happens when you run towards something instead. And I think that's why I keep coming back. It's so life-affirming. It's really about taking those risks and accepting that you might get hurt, but the alternative is to not really live at all. And that'll be a wrap for today, robots. Thank you for listening to our episode on Moonstruck. It is really one of my favorite movies, and if you don't like it, I'm sorry to say we have to break up. (laughs) I don't make the rules. That's just how it is sometimes. Uh, It's not me. It's you. Uh, Anyway, I'm really excited about our next episode. We're going to be talking about Monstress, which is a really amazing comic I don't even really know how to describe it. I'm going to have to figure that out in the next two weeks. But it's really about, I think, the darker parts of ourselves and what happens when we let those take the wheel. Instead of Jesus take the wheel, it's tentacle monster take the wheel. Yes. I'm real pumped for that. I'm reading it for the first time on Hannah's recommendation. And it's, oh God, I don't even really know how to describe it. It's weird. It's this weird, like, steampunky, art deco, matriarchal japan and not japan asia and it's it's weird but a good weird such a good weird the art is stunning but i'm very excited that we're going to be talking about that i'm sure i'll i'll be snapchatting you the whole way i'm excited for that would you like to introduce our indie creator of the bye week i would love to the person that we are promoing this week is my good friend and they will soon be yours, uh, my friend Michi, who um, is a phenomenal artist. I've known Michi for several years, and it's been so awesome to watch them grow. I feel every time Michi posts art, and I'm just like, I see the improvement. Like, I feel like Stacker Pentecost saying goodbye to Mako and Pacific Rim. He's like, it has been an honor to see you grown. This is how I feel. Also, I've, like, personally commissioned them before, and they made our D&D characters look like they were in, like, a Vogue spread. It was crazy. But if you would like, and you should, you should like this movie, and you should want to support people. If you want to go support Michi, they're on Tumblr as Chrysanthemum Skies, all one word. 
www.tumblr.com um, and their Twitter is I'm gonna spell it because I can't make my mouth form these words apparently I've been rehearsing in my head as one does and I, it's not gonna work so their Twitter is at r e q u i e m p l u i e requiem pluie it's probably french for rain so it'd be pluie pluie requiem pluie <laughs> i'm not allowed to speak french either <laughs> yeah but they're super cool and they have a store where you can buy prints and stuff on ticktail and that's really really cool i would highly highly recommend commissioning something from them they're so cool and if you want to support us which we would mm-hmm. like that very much you can leave us a rating or review on itunes or anywhere else or just say something nice to us somewhere where we'll see it we will eventually check our email i i have it in like a separate browser and mozilla starts up real slow i mean excuses excuses but you can send us an email at remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your comments and feedback. And if you have any recommendations for us or a show you'd really like to see us do, let us know. We're, we're open to that. We're on Twitter, too. You can reach us on Twitter at remedialstudies. Uh, and then finally, we are also on Tumblr at remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. So, yeah, that's that's us. So please leave us some feedback. Contact us in some way. I'm still partially convinced you're all robots, even though I am taking the step of sharing my favorite movie with you. It's a big, mm-hmm. it's a big act of trust on my part. I mean, not really, but you know. <laughs> uh, also, real quick, we mentioned this... By we, I mean Hannah, mentioned this on Twitter. Uh, last episode, the Jupiter Ascending episode, was, like, above, in a way, our most successful episode as far as downloads. And, like, that's so cool because that's the kind of stuff that I know I really like talking about. As much as I love pontificating about books, I also love pontificating about movies. And to have people be, like, into it and to listen to the show, like, at all is crazy. Also, breaking news. The United Kingdom has supplanted New Zealand as our second most populous country. How are you going to deal with that, Kiwis? I look forward to I it. I wonder if it's because we did werewolves instead of vampires. So, like, werewolves in London. Mm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and... Werewolves, not swearwolves. Oh, and man. everyone knows that werewolves are smelly in New Zealand. <laughs> Yes, yes. Also, maybe we just need to do another Taiko Watiti project. <laughs> and we'll get the Wellington demographic back. Yes. I'm open to that. <laughs> now that this has been the longest outro of our lives, I think it's time for us to go, Anna. I think so. So, until next time, robots. <laughs>